If you got your Bibles, open to Colossians chapter 4 and then Acts chapter 5. Colossians chapter 4 and then Acts chapter 5. Starts with this question today. Have you ever had an outsider rate your organization before? You ever had an outsider rate your organization before? Sometimes you find out good things. Sometimes you find out bad things. Sometimes you find out weird things uh, when someone who's from the outside comes in and rates your organization. That happened to me. Um, this was not when uh, the church was rated. And by the way, one of the reasons that we don't ask in like opinion polls and stuff, we do a transportation survey uh, once a year to find out where you guys are coming from and where you live. Uh, but uh, we uh, we don't do like a, 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 a you know a, a, a survey where you would tell us kind of your your comments on how things go because there's a lot of what Waterfront Church has to do here that is not the way we would choose to do it. It's just the way that it kind of has to be because of size restrictions and the place we're located in the city. And so uh, anyway, uh, back in the day, the uh, big moment for any preacher who's been to seminary where you get rated is at your preaching class at seminary. And it is the worst. You know why? Because it's a room full of other aspiring preachers. And what you do is you rate one another after listening to each other preach. It's the worst. Wayne, you remember those days? It's the worst, right? There's nothing worse than preaching to a room full of preachers. They just rip you to pieces. And so our professor in this class, there were 20 of us in the class, and the professor said, which one of you wants to go first? And so some of you know this. um, You are either the person that wants to go first or you're the person that wants to go just as far away as possible. I was one who just went, I just want to get it out of the way. So my hand went up first. I said, I'll do it. I'll go first. I just want to lay it on the altar and just see how it goes. And so he said, all right, Zach, you're up first. So I get my notes together, walk up to the front, and then I begin to preach. And I preached what I thought was a good sermon. And uh, uh, afterwards, when the guys, uh, when we were done, the class looked at me and uh, the professor said, all right, it's time to give him some feedback. And all of a sudden, they just start coming back. A lot of, uh, a lot of nice things are being said, some, some things that, again, that I needed to work on. Uh, and then there was one guy at the end, after them going for a while, there was a guy at the end, and he goes, I just don't understand your pants. That's what he said. <laughs> I just don't understand your pants. Well, I looked down. I was wearing cargo pants that day. Uh, back in those days, I preached in cargo pants sometimes. I worked in youth ministry at the time. So I looked down, and I go, okay. And he goes, I just the whole time was thinking, why does he need those extra pockets? Why is he wearing those pants? And I'm sitting there, and you're supposed to be taking notes on what people say about it. And I was like, uh, noted, I guess. I don't know. So I write it down. After that, the professor was like, I think he's heard enough. Uh, and the professor said, son, you did a great job. And he goes, a minus. So you have an A minus preacher, ladies and gentlemen, right? And apparently if I'd worn the right pants, it might have been an A plus, all right? So when an outsider notices that something's different, again, it's one thing when it's, again, something like a preaching class where I was going to preach anyway, whether they gave me whether they gave me an A in the class or not. Um, I was going to preach anyway. But then there's sometimes where, again, an outsider can really spot something that truly needs some work, that truly needs some help. Um, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, Paul is writing here about the church trying to work out, again, the way that it interacts with outsiders, how it it interacts with people who are not a part of the inner circle. Now, just for the record, as a disclaimer before we get started, we as a church are called to work on ourselves, to work on our body, and then to work on the body of Christ, and then to work on our image that we portray to the outside world. Now, listen to me. It must be in that order. 
If we work on our image to the outside world and then on the church body and then on ourselves, those are churches that end up having major, major problems. You gotta work on yourself, allow Christ to change you in the micro, and then we work on the body as a whole through discipleship and again, through teaching evangelism and growth. And then what we do from there is then we work on the image, we work on how the outside world is able to interact with us because when they interact with us, they're interacting with the gospel message. So with that in mind, look at what he says in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, underline watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Underline clearly as I should. Be wise in the way that you act towards who? Towards outsiders. Underline towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Stop right there for just a minute. This is the prayer of an evangelistic church. Lord, we pray that you would open a door for our ministry. We are watchful and thankful, watching for that opportunity to share the gospel and we are cognizant of the way that we interact with people who are interacting with Christians for the very first time or interacting with people who had negative interactions with Christians leading up to that point. He then comes back and says, let us always be useful, seasoned with salt, so that then we can know how to answer everybody. Back when I had just graduated from college, I got to hear a man named John Strapazon preach. Great disciple, a maker, great a man of God. And I'll never forget, he gave this example. He said, have you ever walked into a situation where there was carbon monoxide before? He said, carbon monoxide is weird because when you walk into it for the first time, it's all you can smell, it's all you can experience. And again, that smell symbolizes there is something wrong that could be deeply harmful for you if you sit in it long enough or if somebody sparks something. I mean, it could be detrimental to so many people. And yet, if you sit in it long enough, you forget that it's there. For the early church, it was very important to them that there would not be carbon monoxide, that there would not be a circumstance where people would come in and go, something just doesn't smell right. Something smells a little bit off. There's something going on here that could be hurtful or could be detrimental. The passage that we're gonna read today in Acts chapter five, starting in verse 12, is going to truly address with us what a Christ-centered church, the reputation that we are to have with outsiders should be. If you're taking notes, write this down. A bold, Christ-centered church is constantly mindful of the mandate to take the gospel to the world. A bold, Christ-centered church is constantly mindful of the mandate to take the gospel to the world. Our interaction with outsiders is not our image. In a city like we have in D.C., where image is so much, for a lot of you in your workplace, of how you interact, know the difference between, again, this idea in the church of maintaining our image, right? We have an image to uphold. Maintaining our image and in trying to reflect the image of Christ. There is a huge difference between the two. And in my opinion, it has to do with this mandate of taking the gospel to the world. When the church is consumed with showing the gospel in the greatest light possible, then it doesn't become about some egocentric image that we have to uphold. Now look at this. If you're taking notes, write this down. Here's our million-dollar question today. What should the church's reputation be amongst outsiders? What should the church's reputation be 
among outsiders, when others look in on us that have not experienced us on the inside, what is it that they should be experiencing in Jesus' name? Now flip over to Acts chapter 5, and we will jump into our story again, uh, past the gate called Beautiful, and today we're going to look at the early church. Some of this is going to sound familiar because you're seeing it over and over again in the way the early church interacted. Now look at what happens. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. It says, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And not among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Underline in Solomon's colonnade, because that's really important too. No one else dared join them. Underline no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Now stop right there for just a minute, because you got something really weird that happened in this set of verses. It says, no one dared join them, and yet the number that they had was growing daily of both men and women. Now stop there for just a minute. Leading into the passage, it said in one of the commentaries that I read on this that Solomon's colonnade is very, very important in this description. Solomon's colonnade is only mentioned a handful of places. One was in our very first passage we did uh, on this uh, study in Acts chapter 3. Remember, that's where the man, he's right outside of Solomon's colonnade. That's where the gate called Beautiful is. Solomon's colonnade was special because it was still a remnant of Solomon's temple. It was a remnant of the old temple. And because of that, it was very, very highly regarded by the people. There also is a point in the story in John when Jesus preaches specifically in Solomon's colonnade. One commentator wrote this, that it is most likely that the marketplace where Jesus turns the tables over that it is most likely that the marketplace actually exists in this Solomon's Colonnade area. The idea is that in Solomon's Colonnade, it is free reign for anybody. Anyone can go in there. So the disciples with this message where they're preaching that Jesus is the Messiah and they're preaching the resurrection, they couldn't go into the Holy of Holies temple with that theology, but they could hang out in the marketplace where everybody else is hanging out. Because of that, it is like, a, a again, a, a wildfire of evangelism that they are able to experience here. There's just an amazing thing that's taking place, and then this joy is deeply contagious. But here's what we find. People were interacting with them, but no one dared join them. Now, here's what's interesting. Join in this passage can also mean that no one like joined in discourse with them, that nobody stood against them, that nobody said bad things, that nobody spoke ill of them. And it says, nevertheless... More and more men and women believed and were added to their number. These people in the early church were reasonable when it came to interacting and dealing with the outside world. If you're taking notes, write this down. What should the church's reputation be among outsiders? Number one, first and foremost, the church's people are reasonable. The church's people are reasonable. We live in an era that says being reasonable is being weak. The truth is, we find again in this passage that the opposite is true. Reasonable people are people that you can have a discussion with, and even if you're wrong or even if they're wrong, you can still interact and share the colonnade together. That's the picture that we have in this passage. If you're taking notes, write this down. A disciple understands the urgency of the gospel while not being given to fits of fear and hopeless desperation. Let me say that again. A disciple understands the urgency of the gospel while 
while not being given to fits of fear and hopeless desperation. One of the things that church people can do as a group is go against what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 13 on what a loving church should look like. In the discourse on what love is, Paul comes back and one of the things he says is love does not insist on its own way. Now here's what's interesting. To be loving and not insist on your own way does not mean that you just compromise on everything. It means that the core values of who you are, in our case, the core values of who we are as a church, the messaging that Christ and him crucified are the most important thing to us, that the resurrection is the reason we have hope for the future, that God's word is wholly given to us as a word directly from him so that we can understand how we can live for him and how we can interact, what sin is and what sin isn't. But the methods... We've said this over and over again. The methods are allowed to change. We are reasonable in the situation that we're navigating, especially in this case with coronavirus. We are reasonable in our interactions with the outside world. And lost people, people looking in that are not a part of our core, they appreciate that we hear their side and listen before making our decisions. You ever had a situation where you just wanted to be so angry at somebody else because they were telling you that you were wrong and you knew that you were right? A reasonable person still hears out your enemy, even if it seems like they don't want to hear you out. I've got a good story to share with you about that. Some of you have heard this before, but it's a good one. It needs to be told over and over again about our church. So our church started on the second floor of the Courtyard Marriott Hotel. And uh, for two years, more than two years, we met every Sunday up there, and that was, that was our space. The little uh, boardroom on the end is where we did all of our kids' ministry, all the kids in one room, basically. And then the other area, the three rooms that are used for Bible study now, we pulled up the walls in those rooms, and it would seat about 150 uh, over there in those rooms. Well, something happened. All of a sudden, we signed a lease on what is now the youth and kids' space that some of you are watching the overflow message in. Uh, over there, the overflow space, that became our new sanctuary. But here's what happened. We overhauled the space. We're about to have our big grand opening. First time that our church will have a space that just belongs to us seven days a week. And I'll never forget, I got to go in and get the zoning signed so that then we can get our certificate of occupancy. The construction's done. We've promoted the grand opening. This is on a Thursday. And I'm like, okay, we'll get it signed and we can have church service there on Sunday. Everybody's excited. I go into DCRA over there in Southwest. And all of a sudden, I go to the head of zoning and go, all right, here's here we are. And he looks at me and he goes, uh, you got a problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, uh, you don't fulfill the parking requirement. Now here's what's interesting. For the rest, for the, the way it works in DC, and this is most cities, you are required to produce for any auditorium space, one parking spot for every 20 seats. However, in this little portion of Navy Yard, there's a little designation called C3C. And C3C does not require a parking, uh, parking requirement for churches specifically. It was almost like the Lord crafted it just for us. It's the reason that we have to stay north of M Street and south of the interstate and then on this side of East Capitol Street, on this side of South Capitol Street. This little bitty area that we have does not have a parking requirement and the Lord provided that for us. So I say that to the gentleman. I said, actually, we don't. I said, we are C3C, and for churches, there is no parking requirement. I said, you gotta look it up. It's right there in the code. He then looks at me and goes, it's not in the code. I've worked here for 20 years, and he says, uh, you're wrong, and you will not get zoning for this building. 
Well, all of a sudden, I look at him, and I'm like, uh, can you look it up? Can you look it up? And he goes, I'm not looking it up. I've been here 20 years. Next. Next. And then all of a sudden, I'm just like, yeah, I mean, my dreams were shattered. I told you guys the story about the air vent in the kid's space. This was another one of those moments where I was like, I shackled the church with debt. We've signed this lease. Everybody had told me this was okay. I immediately get on the phone to our architect, and I said, they've told me that we can't do this, that we don't have enough parking spots. Where are we going to find 10 parking spots for Navy in Navy Yard? Where are we going to find? Some of you are like, if you ever find out, let me know, right? Okay, I mean, there isn't anything here. So she goes, uh, you have a, she goes, you have an exemption. She said, just tell him you have an exemption. I said, I did. He said, next. I said, what do I do? And she goes, well, I don't know what to tell you. Well, then all of a sudden I get on the phone with the builder. And I said, do we have this exemption? He said, yeah, you have that exemption. It's very clear in the code. And he said, did you tell that to the head of zoning? I said, yeah. I said, and he told me next. I mean, what do I do? And he was like, well, I don't know, man. That sounds like a pickle. And I'm just sitting there like, what? And so I get, I'm a crier, and I start crying just right there in the middle of DCRA. Well, I start walking to the elevator shaft, and then there, a woman runs up, and she catches me, and she, young woman, who worked behind the counter, and she goes, remember this name, Gary Engelbert. I'll never forget it as long as I live. Remember this name, Gary Engelbert. And I said, who's Gary Engelbert? And she said, he's the one who can help you. She said, if you're right, she said, he's the one who can get this person to listen. And I said, okay. And so I stand at the elevator, I push the button, and then all of a sudden, a man with a white mustache curled up like Raleigh fingers comes and stands next to me and is about to get in uh, the elevator. The young woman runs back up, and she says, uh, Pastor Zach, this is Gary Engelbert. He had walked right up to the elevator at just that time. And you could see on his face, it was like, who do you think you are telling this guy who I am? I mean, I could tell she was going to get in real trouble. He looks and he goes, uh, yes, uh, what is it? And she goes, he just needs a minute of your time. And Gary's like, um, anything for a D.C. resident? You know, I mean, it was kind of one of those things. And then she goes, uh, he needs to set up a meeting with you. And Gary looks at me and he goes, I'll tell you what. He said, I'm very, very busy. He said, if you have to have this done immediately, he said, tomorrow morning, 9 a.m., he said, you sit outside my office, and he said, if someone doesn't show up for a meeting, I'll let you in, and you can come in, and we can walk through your situation. I said, okay. I got there before the building even opened. I got there before he showed up, and then all of a sudden, I'm at the door, and I waited for an hour and a half just sitting in that lobby before anybody even came to talk to me. He finally peeks his head out, and he goes, you've been here since I got here early this morning. I said, yes, sir. He said, why don't you come back and we'll have a conversation. Walk to the back. I tell him the story. And he says, well, I guess we need to get the head of zoning in here, don't we? Head of zoning walks in, sees me, and goes, oh, not him. Not him. He goes, you don't have the parking spots, so you don't get the approval. He said, I already told you. He goes, it's not there. And I said, sir, if you could please just look online at the code. I said, you'll see that we have the exemption. And he goes, I'm not looking because I know it's not there. And then all of a sudden, Gary Engelbert goes, uh, couldn't hurt to look, could it? And you see the guy. By the way, he didn't belittle his employee. He didn't belittle him. But he said, couldn't hurt to look, could it? All of a sudden, Guy sits down, huffs, and he starts to type. We sit in silence for like two minutes. And guys, I'm crying. That's just who I am, okay? So like, it's like the soft tears coming down. And you can see it. Gary's just sitting there waiting. And then the zoning head 
is just, and then all of a sudden you watch his face just drop. And he goes, uh, they do have an exemption. Um, he goes, uh, they, uh, they do not have to provide parking. He didn't apologize, didn't apologize. At that point, Gary looks over and he goes, Gary Engelbert, and he goes, um, then here's the deal. I think Mr. Randall's and Waterfront Church have suffered enough through this process. He said, I would like to get him out of here in 15 minutes. He said, I'm going to personally walk him through and make sure he gets all of it taken care of and walks out with his certificate of occupancy so that in two days he can have his grand opening. He said, what do you think of that? And his employee said, "Uh, yes, sir, I think that'd be a good idea. He turns and walks out. Now listen, reasonable. Can I tell you what I wanted to do Can I tell you how I wanted to respond? Let's walk through it. When he tells me we don't have the zoning, but I know we do, I wanted to pitch and scream and throw a fit and go, you're wrong, you're wrong. You're trying to mess this whole thing up for us. Do you hate churches? Is that what this is about? Is that what you want to do? I just want to let him have it, but I don't. I got to remain reasonable because this is hopefully the first project of a whole bunch that we do in this neighborhood to get to reach it for Christ. Not only do that, again, the gospel's put in a bad light. So I gotta stay the course. I gotta stay strong. I gotta stay gentle so that then we can move through it. Then when he comes in there and it turns out that he's wrong, you know what I wanna do? Man, I wanna dance the funky chicken right there and say, you were wrong and demand an apology. I wanted that so badly. But in light of the gospel message, what will that do? Absolutely nothing good. Paul says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders so that when they say you, your conversations might be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Can I tell you what happens now when I walk into DCRA? They know if they screw up or if I screw up that it's not the end of the world in our friendship or relationship. Do you realize that that's how we should interact with the outside world? The church must be known as reasonable people. When they find out you're a Christian, all this baggage comes with that because they either don't know any Christians or they've had a bad experience with Christians beforehand. When they interact with you and you're reasonable, not compromising on scripture, not compromising on the shed blood of Jesus Christ or the gospel message, but to be reasonable to deal with, that does nothing but good things for the gospel. If you're taking notes, Write this down. Are you ready? Quick question. Is your presentation, is your gospel presentation gentle or abrasive? Is your gospel presentation gentle or abrasive? And I added a piece to this, by the way, this morning. There is a third way. Is your gospel presentation gentle or abrasive or non-existent? Okay? Gentle, abrasive, or non-existent. When it comes to the way people interact with you as a believer in Jesus Christ, Are you gentle in bringing them along? Or are you one that is abrasive? When you're right, you are right, and they are wrong, right? Or are you the person who comes in and goes, I'm just not gonna share anything so that there is never a point for real relationship with this person? What you say with a non-existent gospel presentation is I don't care about you. That also cannot be the attitude of the church. We've got to care about people and having a relationship with them. 
My dad used to always say this. He would say, don't be surprised when lost people do foolish things. They don't have the same moral foundation that we have. They don't have the same foundation in truth that we have. Why should we be shocked when they behave differently? Cut them some slack, be gentle, and don't compromise on the truths of the gospel. But on the methods, be reasonable people. Look at what happens next in Acts chapter 5, verse 15. It's a cool little story here too. So again, uh, people don't dare join them, and yet they kind of find their way in to join them. These are reasonable people. It's tough to say anything bad about them. Verse 15, it says, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets, look at this, and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Stop right there for just a minute. In this attitude of this fear to join them, what people would do as a gateway to just be around them is they would just lay people to where Peter's shadow would pass by. Don't read into this passage the magic of Peter's shadow. The picture is them going, we just want to be near these Christians. We just want to be near these believers because when we're around you, good things seem to happen. Good stuff seems to happen. I love the fact also that that Peter is the one who is specifically named that they want to get near. Do you know why? Because Peter was a screw-up. Because Peter made mistakes. Very visible, very open. I mean, I'm telling you, legendary, eternal mistakes, stories that will tell into eternity. Him denying Jesus. Him walking on water but taking his eyes off the Lord and beginning to sink. Him feeling like he wasn't good enough and deciding he wanted to quit preaching and just go fishing at the end of John 20. You see, the church's reputation was not just that the people were reasonable, but who had made mistakes, that they were not perfect, that they had made mistakes, and yet the Lord had brought them back and made them useful again. It's a powerful thing when the church is not seen as perfect. You ever heard the old saying, I say it around here sometimes, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it, all right? The picture is our churches are filled with imperfect people, we all make mistakes. Your pastor at the forefront. We all make mistakes. And it's a powerful testimony to the community when they realize we're not looking for perfect people. We are a hospital for sinners and not a club for saints. That was the picture in the early church. You ever been allowed to do something that you didn't deserve to do? You ever had one of those moments before? I got to uh, go on the sidelines. Texas Tech and Oklahoma State, my wife's team and my team won yesterday playing football. And the last time Texas Tech played West Virginia was up here. And so Coach Wells at Texas Tech and my dad uh, were dear friends before my father passed away. And uh, the head coach uh, last year uh, really needed a win against West Virginia. And uh, um, he called and said, hey, uh, or he had his office call and said, hey, can you come up and just be on the sidelines at the game? But we want to give you a really special sideline pass. Well, this was the team pass. So we got to go online and we could even walk through the team with this sideline pass that we have. You want to talk about undeserved. I'm telling you, living up here in D.C., I mean, I've got this sideline pass. I graduated from Oklahoma State, not Texas Tech, and there I am on the sideline with the team. I'm from Lubbock, so I take what you will from that. But anyway, I'll never forget, Autumn, I've got this sideline pass on, and we're up there right next to the team, and we're wearing this lanyard that says it's okay for us to be there. But from behind, over and over again, one of the police officers would yell, hey, 
you're not supposed to be here. And then we would turn around and be like, hey, and show them that pass. And then you'd watch them go, sorry, sir, sorry, sorry, no problem. Can I get you anything? Nope, nope, okay, just check it. Because we had the pass that showed that we were counted as worthy to be on the sidelines. You realize that that's what happens with the redeemed. Here in the church, we are all sinners who fall short of God's glory. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. In him, we get a lanyard that gets us full access to Almighty God that we could never deserve on our own. We have been redeemed. The enemy loves to throw in our face that we are not good enough. The problem with that lie of the devil is that it's Jesus Christ. We can be forgiven, not just for now, but all the way into eternity. If you're taking notes, write this down. The forgiveness and grace available in Jesus is most clearly seen by the world in the light of our weakness. The forgiveness and grace available in Jesus is most clearly seen by the world in the light of our weakness. You see, when people interact with members of the church, when they see us from behind, we look just like everybody else. But the lanyard we wear this idea of being forgiven and redeemed, the grace that is showered upon us, all of a sudden creates something new within us, even though we are flawed, even though we have failed. In Jesus Christ, we have been made whole and new again. Save your spot there in Acts 5. I want to read you a cool verse. Psalm 107, verses 2 and 3. Psalm 107, by the way, if any of you ever sang when you were kids, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, it's a fun little song. It comes straight, again, from Psalm chapter 107, starting in verses two and three. Here's what the psalmist has to say. Verse two, let the redeemed of the Lord say this, or again, another translation, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. The those he gathered from the, hand, from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. The psalmist here says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story because it fills others around us with hope that if God could save us, then maybe he could save and work on their lives at the same time. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west, no matter what your background no matter where you're from, that story is powerful because the story of the redeemed can be true for each one of us. It begs the question, do you walk in the power of redemption or do you continue to be stuck in sin and shame? Christ has set you free from it. The church cannot walk in regret of its past. The church has got to walk in freedom knowing the shed blood of Christ has covered my sin, past, present, and future, and I will spend every day trying to live for him with every ounce of strength that I have. Now flip back to Acts 5, verse 16. One more verse, and we'll call it a day today. So we've got this story again where people wouldn't dare join them and yet they still find themselves being drawn to them. These were reasonable people. Then we found this next verse. Peter's shadow passes by. They just want to get near to those believers, get near to the redeemed. 
because they find hope in their own lives when they do that. And now verse 16, it says, Now crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing in their sick and those tormented by evil spirits. Look at this. And all of them were healed. Underline, and all of them were healed. The crowds show up, not just in Jerusalem, but even from the surrounding area. They begin to hear the stories about what is happening, what God is doing through this group of disciples, through these leaders. And all of a sudden they come in and they find healing when they spend time with these church people. If you're taking notes, our last point today, what should the church's reputation be amongst outsiders? Number one, the church's people are reasonable. Number two, the church's people are redeemed. And number three, the church's people experience healing when they are around what God is doing. There is a physical, emotional, spiritual healing that all of a sudden begins to take place. If you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus is the great physician for your body, mind, and soul. Jesus is the great physician for your body, mind, and soul. I got one more story for you today. For you today. One of my favorite little stories. Over the years, the way that evangelism happens is typically the Lord will speak micro to one person's heart, and then that person becomes what I like to call a mascot. I myself have been a mascot from time to time. The Lord will work micro in one heart, and then when the story is told or when it's experienced by those around, all of a sudden the thought is, if the Lord could do that for him, if the Lord could do that for her, then maybe just maybe he could do the same thing for me. Or maybe just maybe he could do that to someone I care about. Maybe just maybe he could do that for our community, for our country. And it begins to spread like wildfire. It's the John chapter 4 example. When Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, after his interaction with one woman, she then does all the, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, marketing for the revival all throughout the town. She goes through and says, come meet the man who told me everything I ever did. And then they show up, and it says at the end of John chapter 4 that they say, we not only believe because of what you've preached, we believe because of the testimony of this woman. Come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. He knew who I was. He knew the mistakes I'd made, and yet he still loved me and spent time with me. He still forgave me. When church people experience healing on an individual level, it spreads like wildfire around us. It's contagious because others can begin to see themselves in your story. Crazy little story. Again, one of my favorites. I worked in student ministry for more than a decade. And specifically, uh, this was right after Hurricane Katrina had taken place. And um, we had a young man in our youth group and uh, this young man showed up, and the first night that he was in, um, and really for the whole first stretch that we knew him, um, and he's, he's had his struggles over the years, but this young man showed up, and he had long sleeves on. Uh, he had uh, um, uh, sweatshirt sleeves, and he had cut the hole out for his thumb with the sweatshirt sleeves. It's not always this way, but sometimes that can be a sign that someone struggles with cutting. And so... Um, he had cut the sleeve open and, and was wearing these long sleeves. And I'll never forget, um, he's coming around, but he wore those sleeves every time. Didn't matter how hot it was, he always wore those sleeves. And the Lord started to work in his life through that stretch. And um, anyway, we have this mission trip to New Orleans that we're going to do over spring break. So we go, and when we go to New Orleans, um, it gets really, really hot. And this young man signs up for the mission trip. 
Um, when we get there, he comes up on the first day, it's Monday, and he says, ah, I've been praying, and I think the Lord wants me to take off my sleeves. We said, okay, we support you. I said, are you sure? He said, no, it's time. He takes off the sleeves. I mean, he had worn them for years. Their father was in prison because of the abuse that these kiddos had endured, he and his brothers and sisters. And when he takes off the sleeves, it was so many cuts. I'd never seen anything like it at that point. It almost took your breath away. And his skin had not seen the light of day in so long. And there were cuts up and down the arms. And I remember thinking, I wonder how our kids were going to respond. The students on the trip, they loved him. They loved him like the church should love anyone in any circumstance. It was, it was beautiful to watch. So on that first day, Monday, he'd not had a skin seat a lot of day in a long time. And for some of you who've been to New Orleans over spring break, you know it is hot. It is hot. He sunburns badly on that first day, taking the sleeves off. And I remember that night looking at the Lord and being like, Lord, come on, give him a break, you know? Cut him a break. The Lord is always doing good things, even when it seems like we don't understand it. By Friday, the sunburn had begun to peel, and a lot of the small cuts on his arms all of a sudden were gone. They had been healed. It was so amazing to watch. So we did a time of testimony that Friday night, and this young man stood up and said, the Lord called me to take off my sleeves. I sunburned, and then God gave me new skin. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. I tell you a story to say this. It spread like wildfire through the youth group. All of a sudden, it was if the Lord could speak to him, Maybe he could speak to me too. We saw so many come to Christ. The Johnsons were there through that stretch. We saw so many come to Christ through that stretch. Students that would say, if the Lord could save him, maybe he could save me too. For the early church, for what we hope our church will be, we have got to be a place of healing, not a collection of perfect people because we are all imperfect but a gathering where people can look and say, I just don't understand it. They're just such reasonable people. They don't compromise on the truths of scripture, but you can talk with them and reason with them, have a real discussion with them. They're real people. And even when I'm wrong, they don't hate me for being wrong. We've got to be an area where people look at us and go, they've been redeemed. There's just something special about them. They don't have to be perfect. And when I'm around them, even if I'm just near their shadow, even if I'm just off to the side, my life for some reason is better because I've interacted with these people. That should be the reputation of the church. One last little question for you. Have you given proper attention to what God has brought you through? Have you given proper attention to what God has brought you through? It is straight hateful for us to have a non-existent testimony. We gotta be individuals that are willing to share what God has brought us through. Even in some of the stories I've told you today, these are not people who are perfect. These are not even people who have made all good decisions, myself included, and yet the Lord can still work in our hearts and lives. I love you guys. I'm telling you, this may have sounded like it was very similar to some of the lessons in the past. The early church did the basics well. It was very similar in the way that they interacted. We've got to do the same.
Let's bow our heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me. We call this our time of reflection. Nothing mystical or magical about this time. Just a chance for us to stop and to process the songs we've sung, the sermon we've heard, and specifically the scripture that we've read. With nobody looking around but just me, is there anyone here today that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I need to be a bit more reasonable. Now remember, that does not mean that you compromise on the truths of Scripture or the truths of the gospel message. But in your interactions with other people, just like mine with city government, you got to come to a point where you're kind, where you're gentle, where again, you are building for a relationship in the future and not just trying to be right in the moment. With nobody looking around but just me, if you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Pray that I would be reasonable because the gospel is worthy of that. If that's you, if you just lift your hand where you are right now. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down. That takes guts. If that was you, I'm going to pray for you. But I want to encourage you, just pray this simple prayer. God, let me present with gentleness because the gospel is worthy of that. God, let me present with gentleness because the gospel is worthy of that. And then second, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? Not stuck in sin, but that I might truly walk with confidence because the Lord has redeemed me. The shed blood of Jesus Christ covers my sin. Would you pray for me that I would walk like I'm redeemed and not with my head hung low like I'm still stuck in that shame? You got the lanyard. The shed blood of Jesus Christ covers your sin. Walk in freedom with nobody looking but just me. If you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Pray that I would walk as one redeemed and not one stuck in shame. If that's you, if you just lift your hand where you are right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So many of you, y'all can put your hands down. Thank you. If that was you, just pray this simple prayer. Lord, I have been redeemed. And I will say so. Lord, I have been redeemed. And I will say so. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness. And then last but not least, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? Would you pray that I would have the guts to tell the story of my healing? The way that my body, my spirit, my mind, the way that the Lord has healed me. Because when I share my story Others start to think maybe God could do the same thing for me or for someone close to me. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Pray that I would tell my story of healing. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. It's powerful. It's powerful. Y'all can put your hands down. I'm going to pray for you, but if that was you, pray this simple prayer. Lord, help me to have courage to share my story where appropriate. We said again. Lord, help me have courage to share my story where appropriate. I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening today. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll stand to our feet. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings in it. Thank you so much for this description of the early church. And Lord, for that beautiful prayer from Paul in Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Lord, I pray that when people look in on our church, that they would not see perfection. Lord, I pray that they would see you. 
that we would be an accurate reflection of who you are, of what you have done for us. Lord, I pray that when they see us, that we would be a reasonable people, that even when we're right or when we're wrong, that we would interact in such a way that there is still a relationship between us and the outside world. Lord, I pray that we would be kind and gentle in our portrayal of the gospel message and yet uncompromising on the truths of Scripture. Lord, I also pray that we would walk as those who have been redeemed, that we would wear that lanyard around our neck, that when people see us, they would know our testimony is, if it weren't for Jesus, we'd be in real trouble. And Lord, for those who need to share their story, give them a double portion of courage and provide an appropriate opportunity for them to share it on an individual level or even with a group. Use them in a powerful way. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.